I'm Kelly Andreessen, Public Information Officer for Johnson County. Thank you to those in the media reporting on this event, uh, to our community partners who are participating, and to those of you who are watching online. Just a few reminders, we are streaming this live on City Channel 4's YouTube page and on the Johnson County Public Health Facebook page. We're practicing social distancing, so we've limited the number of people in the room. And for those purposes, we will have a few speakers participating via Zoom. And for those who are in person, I will bring in each speaker at a time. They'll make their statement, and then we'll open it up for questions for that individual. Uh, for reporters, if you do have follow-up questions, uh, as usual, just touch base with us after the press conference, and we'll connect you. Uh, we are taking questions from reporters virtually, so thank you for your patience and your flexibility. So we will get started with Dr. Teresa Brennan, Chief Medical Officer for University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Good afternoon, Dr. Brennan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Hang us. Good afternoon to everyone. Um, I'll start with our numbers. Uh, so today at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, we're caring for 24 adult um, inpatients. Calendar year today, that um, takes us up to a total of 161 patients cared uh, for here with COVID-19. Um, we presently do not have any pediatric inpatients and have, over the course of this outbreak, taken care of four inpatients in our pediatric hospital. Um, I also want to make uh, a, a comment. Um, again, I'd like to start by thanking um, the community for all of the um, outpourings and of uh, support and um, the well wishes that that our healthcare workers um, within the, the city and Johnson County have, have been blessed to have. Um, I do want to point out that last week was Nurses Week, uh, this week is Hospital Week, and next week is Emergency Medical Services Week. Um, and so if I could ask the viewers to um, please thank a healthcare worker. Um, this is uh, such an important time for this. Normally we would celebrate these weeks um, because these people do great work each and every day. But with COVID-19, our celebrations have been shortened a bit. So if the community um, would reach out to the healthcare workers, that would be fantastic. I'm happy to take questions. All right, we have a question from Ryan Foley with the Associated Press. We're starting to hear some remarkable anecdotal stories of COVID-19 patients who have survived near-death experiences after treatment at UIHC. Do you have an idea of how many patients who were on ventilators at UIHC have recovered and been discharged? Without violating medical privacy, can you generally discuss some of the treatments they've received that have been successful? Sure. Um, I don't have those those uh, data uh, at my fingertips right now, but um, I suspect we could provide those um, if you want to uh, reach out to us after the press conference. Um, I can tell you without um, without uh, violating any sort of privacy that we we've had patients um, who have been on ECMO um, and uh, who have recovered. Um, we've also had a number of patients that have been on ventilators. Um, and one of the things that uh, we have seen and that has been reported nationally is the use of prone ventilation and how that actually has been very helpful in these patients who have um, significant respiratory distress. All right, we have some questions from Sarah Watson from the Daily Iowan. Uh, is UIHC consulting with patients via telehealth with COVID-19 symptoms that don't qualify for a test under the current criteria 
How are those patients classified? And is it possible that because not everyone can receive a test that we are undercounting cases of COVID-19? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so our process is if a patient has symptoms that could be COVID-19 related, um, they would have a video visit. And those patients who um, either meet criteria for testing or who are sick enough to require uh, an, an in-person evaluation would be seen in our respiratory illness clinic or, or also um, we called it at one point in time our ILI clinic. Um, those patients, if they test positive, then they're followed up by our home healthcare team. Um, so our, our home treatment team um, would then be following them up on a daily basis. Very early on after we initiated, sorry, very early on after we initiated um, the home treatment team, we recognized that there were some patients that continued to have symptoms and that needed follow-up. So our ILI clinic staff do reach out to patients um, to make sure that they're doing well and to see if their symptoms have progressed or that they need further treatment. Um, with doing this, they have recognized that some people that don't meet guidelines for, sorry, I'm getting feedback. Sorry, early on we recognized that um, that although they didn't meet the guidelines to be treated, that they seem to have um, uh, symptoms that were quite consistent with COVID. And some of those patients have been labeled as presumed positive. Um, there are also patients that don't meet the guidelines. And although here at UIHC, we have broadened those guidelines significantly since the start of this. Um, Sorry, there's, there's someone Johnson County online that isn't muted and I think I'm getting echo from that. I can't tell who it is. So where was I, sorry about that. Okay, uh, well, mm, okay. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> is there anything I should be doing differently? When I speak, your box lights up as if it's coming through. Um, so, thank you, sorry about that. Um, so, so clearly there are people that don't meet those criteria. And although we have broadened the criteria throughout the outbreak, there are still people that, that may have COVID-19 who do not meet those criteria. And our staff have been telling those people to maintain a quarantine. Um, and to uh, uh, monitor their symptoms and to contact us if we don't contact them. Um, and so uh, likely the numbers are uh, underestimated, although I will say that there are other, a number of other viruses that can cause similar symptoms. Um, so um, the accuracy is, is really uh, undetermined. Okay, thank you for that. Sorry about the issues. Uh, another question from Sarah Watson. It's not letting me unmute. Yep. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, another question from Sarah. Does UIHC have testing capabilities beyond testing the people that meet the current criteria for a test? 
Yes, we are not at our capacity on a daily basis, although the number of people that we test daily varies uh, fairly widely. Um, as you know, we are testing uh, a number of asymptomatic patients. Um, every patient who goes to the operating room is getting a test and, and um, having anyone who has a procedure that could be aerosol generating um, gets a test. We also have been testing those admitted to our behavioral health units because um, of the, the close quarters that those patients are in. Um, so because of those different populations, the numbers vary uh, day to day, but we have not run out of tests um, at this time. Another question from Sarah. Governor Reynolds on Friday said, we have the capacity to test 5,000 people a day for COVID-19, but we aren't processing that many tests a day. Do you know why that is? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I don't know if she may be referring to Test Iowa or if she's referring to other testing centers within the state. Um, I, I think routinely in healthcare, we have the capability of doing um, more and that um, capacity actually allows us for days when we need that capacity. Um, I don't know beyond that uh, what, what number of tests are being done in the state or what the total capacity is. Uh, one more question from Sarah. As counties sure. begin to reopen, are your hospitals preparing for a second wave of COVID-19 cases? Yeah, a really good question. Lots of conversation about uh, a second wave or even wavelets, um, smaller waves that could happen. Uh, I think all of our hospitals continue to be prepared for um, a surge in, in patients with COVID-19. Um, the one thing that I, I would say is that I'm uh, hearing and seeing in the community that, that there may be a perception um, that we're through this, um, seeing lots of, lots of people going into um, local stores without masking, um, the social distancing maybe not being um, uh, kept uh, to a, a standard of six feet. Um, and I, I think it's really important that as the governor opens up the state, um, and as people venture out into the community, whether it for necessary things like their health care or uh, for other things that, that um, are, are necessary, um, that they take those precautions. Those precautions are going to be with us for a while, and it is really important that we continue to, to abide by them and, and use them um, carefully. All right. We have some questions from Kate Payne from Iowa Public Radio. Uh, is UIHC expected to receive doses of remdesivir from the state? We hope so. Uh, the, uh, of course, it's, it's known that we did participate in the initial um, trials, both in the moderate disease patients and the severe disease patients. Um, the, we are working with the state, as are many other hospitals, uh, to identify how that, those um, doses of medications will be distributed. Um, we do believe that the state will be getting those doses. I have not heard confirmation that that is the case. Um, and they are working on a mechanism to distribute them. Um, very, uh, the state is, is uh, and the Department of um, Public Health is very committed to the fact that these doses should be given to patients because it appears that it is an effective treatment. Um, and so a lot of people are working on that. Um, but to date, we have not received any. Okay, another question from Kate. With the experience with the clinical use of remdesivir, 
Will UIHC be involved in helping administer the drug in other parts of the state? Yeah, I can tell you that um, Dr. Dilek Incha, that's I-N-C-E, um, uh, has been working with uh, the state as well as um, uh, um, representatives from other hospitals that have delivered um, remdesivir to create guidelines and to help um, to determine how the, that um, delivery will happen. She is our uh, principal investigator on the remdesivir trial and has been actively involved in the, um, the care of these patients. All right, we have a couple questions from Travis Brees from KWWL. As part of UIHC's remdesivir trials, are there patients getting a placebo and are researchers comparing different groups? And can you say if the remdesivir patients have had a greater survival rate or reduced symptoms? Yeah, I'll answer the last question first. Um, really hard uh, to know. I can tell you that our survival rates have been better here than um, expected and better than we're hearing about nationally. Um, not all of our patients have gotten remdesivir. Um, the SEVERE trial was not randomized, um, and I am not certain if the moderate disease trial was randomized. Um, uh, patients are um, enrolled in these trials after careful discussion with them about their choices. Um, uh, in addition, we are offering the convalescent plasma trial to our patients, and so uh, patients have more than one choice. And I don't know if I answered all the questions. One more. Uh, Governor Reynolds talked yesterday about more remdesivir coming to Iowa hotspots. Are you expecting another shipment as part of this effort? Um, again, I think that the state will um, will uh, take uh, over ownership of the shipments and then they'll be distributed to the hospitals. Um, we hope that the, the remdesivir continues to come as it appears that, that it is um, or has some uh, effect, positive effect on our on patients. Uh, we have a question from Vanessa Miller from the Gazette. Has UIHC seen any of the weird symptoms and other COVID-related issues in pediatric patients that they've started to report in New York? Yeah, there's a lot of um, new developments uh, that we're hearing in the media. Uh, I can't speak to whether our pediatricians uh, have seen any of these at this point in time. Um, Vanessa, we can follow up with you on that. Uh, some more questions from Vanessa. Has UIHC started antibody testing yet, or is it still waiting on supplies? If it has started testing for antibodies, who gets tested? Just plasma donors, or are others who think they've had it and want to donate? I'm sorry, I missed the last part of that you were breaking up. Um, can you just repeat the last couple sentences? Yep, um, if, if it has started testing for antibodies, who gets tested? just plasma donors or others who think they've had it and want to donate? Great question. Um, so uh, we have not uh, started broad-based testing um, using the serologies. We do have the equipment on site. Um, the first um, um, wave probably will be through a research trial um, and we have at least one research trial uh, on, the, on the horizon for that. Um, we'll have further information about that as we get going. We're, okay. we're presently not using it for clinical use. Uh, some more questions from Vanessa. Uh, how is the plasma trial going? How many have used plasma? 
how many have donated, and does it appear to be effective? Um, Vanessa, we can get to those numbers uh, specifically, but around 40 donors have been, 40, um, donors have been identified, um, and we've delivered uh, just over 30 um, patients the, the convalescent plasma at this point in time. Um, we are continuing to um, work with donors uh, to um, uh, access the plasma and continuing to deliver it to patients. And as I said, the patients are offered the opportunity to participate in whichever trial they're eligible for, um, and they have that choice. Another question from Vanessa, is UIHC doing any of its own contact tracing? And if so, what does that look like? Our hospital epidemiologists um, determine if contact tracing is feasible given resources. Um, they, they're pretty busy with this outbreak um, and whether it's necessary. There have been places within the hospital um, where uh, contract, contact tracing has been done, um, but in general, we're not doing routine contact tracing within the hospital. Another question from Vanessa. Uh, what has UIHC's reinstated elective procedures process looked like? Do you have elective procedure numbers since opening that back up? And are you benefiting from that revenue again? Yeah, so um, our, uh, we have opened up to a broader number of procedures being done uh, in the operating room and beyond. Um, the process um, effectively looks like this. The uh, surgeon will consider whether the procedure is necessary and um, whether the timing is appropriate to have the patient have their procedure now. The conversation then happens with the patient. Um, so it's really an individual discussion between the surgeon and the patient. Um, we have set up some guardrails. Um, so in order to follow the governor's proclamation and to keep patients um, and our staff safe. Um, our department chairs are overseeing within their department to make sure that appropriate surgeries are being done. Um, I, I can't really speak to whether we're, we're benefiting from um, the financial um, revenues as this has just started. Great, thank you, Dr. Brennan. I don't believe we have any additional questions for you, but thank you for joining us today. Great. Thanks, Great. So, Thanks much. so much. Thanks for tolerating the technology difficulties. Have a good day. You too. All right. Now we have uh, Margaret Reese, Public Information Officer for Mercy, Iowa City. Good afternoon, Margaret. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm well. well thank thank you. you. All right. So I do. I'm sorry. Okay. I do have a few prepared remarks. Uh, as of 8 a.m. today, we had five patients in-house who are positive for COVID-19, and this is day 65 of Mercy's uh, COVID-19 response. Uh, I want to start by saying that it is safe to access care at Mercy Hospital, Mercy Clinics, our Ambulatory Surgery Center, or ASC at Northgate, and our other providers' offices. And saying that, uh, elective surgeries began here last week, and that is all going very well. Urgent and emergent surgeries never stopped being performed, so we have simply increased the number of patients being cared for overall. All patients are tested prior to surgery, including those who are emergent, meaning that they require surgery immediately for an emergency situation. 
Our cardiologists are also, again, scheduling patients in the cardiac catheterization lab here, where in December we had just completed an upgrade to the second of our three procedure areas. Uh, so now uh, with the latest equipment, uh, so they had performed, of course, uh, emergency um, uh, procedures, but now they are scheduling again. Uh, we are also ramping up uh, for cardiovascular surgery. We have two new cardiovascular surgeons who have joined that team. And we plan to return to a normal operating room schedule on May 18th, so Monday of next week. Um, I also want people to know that patients who are positive or suspected uh, to be positive for COVID-19 are cared for in a separate unit uh, from other patients in the hospital. It is a unit that is negative airflow with private access and that we take all precautions to protect our colleagues, our patients, and visitors. The in-office visits at all 25 of our Mercy primary and specialty care clinics are also increasing each day. Telehealth, which we didn't even have until uh, the latter half of March, continues to be an excellent way to visit with a provider, and we have made it possible also for those who do not have a smart device or they don't have a computer with a camera on it to access uh, uh, telehealth. And it may be also that they don't have reliable internet access, which is especially true in some of the rural areas that we serve. Um, so we make it possible for them to access uh, telehealth outside of those offices. We encourage all patients and visitors to wear a cloth or other mask when they go to their provider's office or they come to the hospital. Um, Mercy is also enrolled in a convalescent plasma therapy clinical research study uh, with the Mayo Clinic, uh, which is a very promising treatment uh, for patients who are critically ill with COVID-19. Uh, so far, we have been able to administer plasma successfully to seven patients. We encourage anyone who has recovered or is recovering from COVID-19 to consider donating plasma. More information and the opportunity to self-register to see if they are eligible to donate plasma is available on the Mercy Iowa City website at www.mercyiowacity.org. Just have to click on the learn more button on the COVID-19 banner at the top of the page uh, and you'll be directed to the information that you need. Mercy receives its blood and plasma supply from the Mississippi Valley Regional Blood Center and the donation would be made to them. At this time, to be eligible, an individual must be symptom-free for 28 days, although this length of time may be reduced, but now it is 28 days. Individuals can register or pre-register online or ask their physicians to register them. Uh, by donating plasma, an individual may be able to save the lives of others who are critically ill. It, it really um, is an extraordinary um, option uh, for people to follow to help others who are impacted by this virus. We encourage everyone who is coming to the hospital or going to a clinic uh, appointment to wear a cloth mask. I stated that before. To also continue following precautions by socially distancing, wearing that cloth mask when you are around others, to wash hands frequently, and to sanitize frequently used surfaces such as phones, keyboards, counters, tables, faucets, steering wheels, and more. Um, we remind everyone that it is safe to seek medical care 
uh, here at Mercy. We screen our staff members every day, uh, temperature checks included, our patients, our visitors. Uh, we encourage everyone to wear masks uh, when they are here and the clinical staff also wear face shields. Uh, we follow all of the CDC recommendations for cleaning and sanitizing. We continue our visitor restrictions here. Um, we practice social distancing. Uh, for instance, we have reduced seating capacity in the cafeteria and waiting areas and so forth. And if anyone has uh, respiratory symptoms, they are directed either to our drive-up testing site or our ARC, the acute respiratory clinic uh, site, or if they are directed to the emergency care unit, they are screened uh, or seen and tested outside of the emergency room in the tent area or in their car. Um, we would like to thank everyone also for the many, many donations uh, that we have received. The cloth masks have been and continue to be so much appreciated and they are something that we can now uh, give to patients and visitors if they arrive in the emergency area uh, or a clinic site uh, and they don't have a mask. So we still appreciate those donations and the many donations of food, uh, the notes, the cards, everything has been absolutely fabulous. And I also would like to say that in addition to continuing to plan for COVID, because we don't anticipate this being gone anytime soon, um, we don't know if we should anticipate a surge or if we should anticipate that it's just going to be here and, and, and rise up in, in um, varying capacities uh, for a few months or another year. We just have no idea. So we're preparing for whatever the future holds. But we are also moving towards business resumption uh, at Mercy. And so in um, uh, complementary to the planning for COVID-19, we are also uh, planning for the normal operations of the hospital and clinics. Uh, and so we are planning to have, uh, make sure that we have the appropriate PPE for both situations, that we have uh, the appropriate supplies uh, for the operating room and uh, other areas, that we have the medication supplies that we need, that we have the bed availability. We assess that obviously on an ongoing basis, every single day, staffing and so forth, uh, to be able to accommodate uh, patients who need to seek care uh, because they have those respiratory symptoms that could be COVID-19, but also uh, who need care for uh, any other reason. Uh, and uh, just want to assure them that we are here for them uh, and um, we'll take care of them. And are there questions? Thank you, Margaret. Uh, we have some questions from Sarah Watson with The Daily Iowan. Is Mercy consulting with patients via telehealth with COVID-19 symptoms who don't qualify for a test under the current criteria? How are those patients classified? And is it possible that because not everyone can receive a test that we are undercounting cases of COVID-19? Um, I can't thoroughly comment on that, but it is very likely that, that um, we are undercounting. Well, obviously we have to be undercounting because not everybody is being tested, so you can't get an accurate count. Um, we test everyone who seems to have symptoms that uh, need to be addressed, and we uh, address, we screen them and then decide if they need a test and then and take care of them. Uh, we do follow up with individuals. Uh, we certainly follow up with everybody who has been tested. Uh, we follow up with everyone who has been discharged and we follow up on a regular schedule of every three days uh, to make sure that they're doing all right and that they uh, don't develop some other symptoms or, or a situation where they need um, more dramatic medical care. Another question from Sarah. 
Does Mercy have testing capabilities beyond testing the people who meet the criteria for a test? We are testing, for instance, everyone who is scheduled for surgery. Uh, and uh, if they're coming in as an inpatient, if they're coming in through the emergency room, we are testing those individuals. Another question from Sarah. Governor Reynolds on Friday said, we have the capacity to test 5,000 people a day for COVID-19, but we aren't processing that many tests a day. Do you know why that is? I can't answer that question. Um, and I don't know if that relates to the test Iowa or it doesn't relate to the test Iowa. We just don't have that information. One last question from Sarah. As counties begin to reopen, is Mercy prepared for a second wave of COVID-19 cases? Yes, we are uh, on high alert uh, for potential surges, whether that would be one large surge or that would be uh, uh, periodic uh, occurrences of uh, a higher volume of patients with COVID-19. Um, until there is a reliable vaccine, and we don't know how long that might be, this is something that we have to all live with and be aware of, and uh, we just strongly, strongly, strongly encourage everyone to continue following all of the precautions uh, to reduce the potential spread of this virus. So the masks, uh, when you are out in public and social distancing uh, and hand washing and so forth, very, very important to continue these precautions. All right, we have some questions from Kate Payne with Iowa Public Radio. Is Mercy expected to receive doses of remdesivir from the state? We are not expecting that, but we are hoping to. We have applied and we are continuing uh, to advocate uh, to receive remdesivir, uh, but we don't have uh, uh, that information yet. We, we will just have to wait to find out. And a follow-up, though I'm not sure you can answer it. Uh, with the experience with the clinical use of remdesivir, uh, will Mercy be involved in helping administer the drug in other parts of the state? Uh, we would not be involved in other parts of the state, only in Southeast Iowa, if we are able to uh, receive uh, remdesivir to use with patients. All right. Looks like we don't have any more questions for you, Margaret. Thank you so All much. Right. Have, Thank have you. a good afternoon. Bye-bye. All right. Next up, we... Johnson Makota, director of the Iowa City VA Hospital. Good afternoon, Judy. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for this opportunity. So uh, I want to, uh, again, Judy Johnson Mecca, I'm director of the Iowa City VA Healthcare System. Before I uh, go through some of my talking points, I want to make sure you understand about our system in case you're not familiar. But the Iowa City VA Healthcare System is comprised of the main medical center here in Iowa City, and then we have 10 community-based outpatient clinics that are dispersed through 33 counties in eastern Iowa and 17 in western Illinois. We treat around 52,000 veterans. So, you know, uh, all our sites have been open and operational, seeing veterans via either telephone, telehealth, or actual face-to-face -face visits. Of course, we are treating emergencies and urgent needs of the veterans as well. Our emergency operations center has been stood up for over 12 weeks now, and so we're using a phased approach for our planning purposes. And so far we've not had to reach our surge capabilities, so we're very fortunate in that area, but certainly we're prepared to uh, deal with any situations as they arise. You know, I wanna give you a few updates. You know, we offer comprehensive services and treatments for COVID-19 patients, similar to the community. We offer prone positioning, convalescent plasma, 
And we do have access to remdesivir through VA channels. Uh, that's how we uh, acquire medications. And so we do have access if our veterans would need those uh, medications. So a good opportunity. You know, our current inpatient census is five. I think our maximum uh, census at one point was eight. So we've been able to uh, uh, not address any surge beds or any capabilities, as I mentioned. Uh, so uh, we've been able to treat those veterans. Uh, when it comes to testing, we do use state hygienic lab as well as the University of Iowa Hospital and clinics. We do, do testing on site. And we also offer drive up testing for our veterans as well. You know, our facility is equipped with all the essential items and supplies needed to handle any influx of coronavirus cases. And we do follow CDC and Iowa Department of Public Health guidelines uh, to ensure that we're for, uh, appropriate for testing and reporting. Uh, to minimize risk for veterans and employees, uh, individuals that are known to be at risk for COVID-19 uh, infection, they're immediately isolated to uh, prevent spread to others. And so we do have a separate assessment and triage area for those patients. Uh, we also pre-screen anyone that walks through our doors, employees and veterans. Uh, we do have visitor restrictions in place. And so sometimes this may lengthen our entry times into the healthcare system. And so we just advise our veterans to plan accordingly when they need to come here for appointments. We've also implemented uh, what we call temperature thermal scanning as part of our screening process. And so this is for both veterans and employees, whereby uh, we use thermal cameras to detect if an individual may have a fever. If they do, they are immediately routed to our assessment center for further evaluation. You know, I do want to mention that uh, veterans who are concerned that they have symptoms of COVID-19, cold or flu, uh, they should contact us. And our contact number is area code 319-338. 0581 and at the entry point then pre please press five and they'll be able to talk to someone about their concerns or if they need to have an appointment scheduled so that's an opportunity for them to connect with a member of course we have staff available 24 7 on a virtual basis for any questions or triage needs that they may have and certainly that's no cost to veterans anyone that's enrolled in our healthcare system can use that capability you know, we've been really diligent in ensuring that our most vulnerable veterans uh, are taken care of and to include those with physical disabilities or mental health concerns. And so we encourage the community to reach out to those in isolation to assure that they're safe and well. And we would certainly ask the community that uh, to have the number of our crisis line. It's actually the general crisis line available to help a person in need, regardless of the, if they're a veteran. And that number is uh, 1-800-873. 8255. I think it's a critical number to be able to help those that may be in crisis. And we have seen an increase in our crisis line calls within our catchment area over the past several weeks. So uh, please keep that number in mind. And lastly, I know that uh, communities are talking about recovery plans. And so we're following VA's guidance regarding that. And we've just received a moving forward plan. And so the guidance we're receiving is very general. It involves three phases. Uh, but it's primarily predicated on local conditions and caseload at the time. So you know, the first phase that we're looking at is that we, we must demonstrate where we're seeing a fall in the number of patients exhibiting COVID symptoms. And then we can look at, the, you know, if those conditions are met, but then we can look at uh, considering resuming elective procedures and, and certain face-to-face -face visits. So uh, we're certainly in the process of doing that now. So as of now, that's uh, all I have for my formal report pending any questions. So thank you. Thank you, Judy. Uh, we have some questions from Sarah Watson with The Daily Iowan. Is VA consulting with patients via telehealth with COVID-19 symptoms who don't qualify for a test under the current criteria? 
And how are those patients classified? And is it possible that because not everyone can receive a test that we are undercounting cases of COVID-19? So we are, uh, certainly we have, uh, with our testing capabilities, we are testing, We, given the criteria, we are testing veterans. And so we do follow them whether they are at home or they're inpatient. So we do have a process in place to ensure that they are followed appropriately uh, with contact from the uh, care providers as well. Okay, another question from Sarah. Uh, does VA have testing capabilities beyond testing the people who meet the current criteria for a test? Our testing capability is, uh, is well suited for our current criteria that we are testing those, uh, you know, we are testing those individuals that may be coming in for surgeries. We test our uh, inpatient admissions as well as our mental health admissions. So our current capabilities are meeting our criteria. Okay, another question from Sarah. As counties begin to reopen, is the VA preparing for a second wave of COVID-19 cases? So as I described, you know, we have a fairly expansive region, our catchment area with the 33 counties in Eastern Iowa. So we're watching those areas very closely in terms of number numbers and caseload. And so certainly in, as part of our phased uh, approach to recovery, as well as continue with our emergency response plan. We are watching that closely and ensuring that we do have the capabilities uh, at, at any time. So we're following the data closely and, and watching as the other community hospitals are as well. Okay, we have a few questions from Kate Payne with Iowa Public Radio. Uh, is the VA expected to receive doses of remdesivir from the state? And with the experience with the clinical use of, a, of remdesivir, will VA be involved in helping administer the drug in other parts of the state? So as I mentioned before, our remdesivir is actually allocated through VA channels. So we do have the capabilities to receive remdesivir based on criteria. So we have that uh, uh, medication available to us. We would not be involved in any other uh, uh, healthcare systems allocation. A few questions from Travis Brees with KWWL. In the past, we've been told the VA has its own supply channels for PPE. What is the current status of those shipments and how much are you relying on supplies that come through the county? Actually, we monitor our PPE supply on a daily basis and we're watching it very closely. We've been very fortunate. Uh, we have a, such a strong logistics team here that have been uh, anticipatory and very proactive in assuring we have adequate supplies. So our reliance uh, has not been on the county. And, you know, we, we, wanna, uh, we wanna try to certainly use our current channels uh, inventory and vendors. And so at this time we have all the supplies and items that we need. Another question from Travis. Are veterans getting mental health counseling through telehealth appointments and has that service increased over the last two months? Yes, veterans are receiving mental health appointments through telehealth, but we are also seeing some veterans via face-to-face -face visits if their condition or, or if it warrants that type of uh, a visit. So certainly, you know, we reach out and we, the staff have done a tremendous job of being proactive once again to reach out to those veterans, contacting them to make sure they're okay. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, if there's any needs, we, we try to address them as soon as possible. All right. Thank you, Judy. It looks like we don't have any additional questions for you. <laughs> have a good afternoon. Well, thank well, you very much. You too.
All right, next up we have Sam Jarvis, Community Health Manager for Johnson County Public Health. Good afternoon. Our numbers today are a total of 559 cases for Johnson County to date, with 330 of those recovered. Today, the governor announced that more information to come on what reopening will look like for us as, uh, as Johnson County. But as we quickly approach that date and try to understand what that means, without a doubt, we will continue to remind everyone of the practices everyone can take to keep themselves and others safe. Going forward, we are committed to taking an active role with our community partners and business leaders to better understand safe practices for reopening. Our goal is to connect people who make those decisions with the best information possible. To describe what this will look like going forward, we'll be issuing guidance, uh, baseline guidance this week and provide opportunities for feedback and questions throughout the process to continue to develop guidance together. We recognize that a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't always work for everyone. But going forward, it will be a partnership to embrace the unknown together. Again, while we see the reopening of areas across the state and people make plans for travel, we cannot forget the lessons learned from the past several months. We cannot forget about all the hard work we've all done, and most importantly, why. And that is to protect each other and those who are most vulnerable. And as we move into the summer, we continue to plan for what surges in cases will look like. Much of the information from our national public health agencies point toward increasing contact tracing, which we described previously. We are in the process of exploring what adding additional individuals for contact tracing will look like, and we hope to provide more information at a later date. But we want to ensure our community that we are making plans to continue our local effort to mitigate this disease. And with that, I'll take questions. Hey, Sam, this question is from uh, Kate at uh, Iowa Public Radio. Is Johnson County still doing its own contact tracing, or is the state doing it? We're doing our local contact tracing. Okay, and another question from Kate. As Governor Reynolds continues easing restrictions and reopening the economy, does Johnson County have the testing and contact tracing resources to determine what impact the lifting of restrictions is having on the county's caseload? Uh, the testing capability uh, lies within the state health department and the state hygienic lab, as well as our providers are able to provide that through their hospitals and clinics, uh, as well as through the, the strike teams that the state has stood up uh, to test others in large facilities. In terms of contact tracing, we have that capacity now, and we're looking at what that will look like in the future. Okay. Um, those are all the questions we have for you. Great. Thank you. To wrap things up, we have Dave Wilson, Director of Johnson County Emergency Management. Thanks. I think you've heard from everybody today about uh, what the new normal might look like, and I wanted to come and address everybody uh, on what that's going to look like this summer. You know, as much as possible, we've tried to keep people informed and be transparent throughout the response. Um, we've had a really successful response through good partnerships with the three hospitals, public health and city and county government, the University of Iowa, and all players at large here, not only in Johnson County, but in the region. 
Um, and we've continued to see that um, as we work towards the new normal. And what that's going to look like, I think, is, is what you see at a lot of the places that have been open through this, those essential businesses like Hy-Vee and Costco and gas stations where you're seeing plexiglass go up, you're seeing people um, asked to wear face masks in their stores, um, you're seeing customers wear that. Um, those public health initiatives that we've talked about since day one, way back in March, are going to continue to be uh, reinforced and be the new normal. And that shouldn't frighten everyone. Uh, it really should add a layer of comfort. So as people see the governor uh, reopening counties and businesses reopening and, and things reverting back to normal, um, you have to understand it's going to be a new normal. So you're probably going to be asked to do things differently. Um, there's probably going to be asked to wear masks in certain businesses to enhance your um, spacing between people at checkout lines to um, you know, deal with people using less cash and more non-contact methods. Those things are okay, and they're designed to keep people safe and healthy. And I just want to really reinforce that, that that's not a reason for concern. That's a reason for security. So we're doing these things as a community to keep people safe and healthy. And why? So that we don't have a surge in the hospitals. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot in the way of voter absentee ballots requests from the Secretary of State's office and the local auditors throughout the state for absentee ballots and, and doing voting that way. Again, that's just another way of making sure that people uh, are able to stay safe and reduce risk. The Census Bureau, um, you know, census is normally conducted through a lot of door-to-door -door activity. You're seeing that done more and more online. And I'd encourage everybody, uh, you know, really go after the, uh, the census piece online and try and fill out and complete your census online and your absentee ballots and, and do voting online. All those things are enhance your uh, safety and reduce risk to you and the public in general. Um, we've gotten through this because we've had strong partnerships with everybody. We've not seen a surge on any of our three hospitals that we were unable to manage. We've done a good job with personal protective equipment throughout the county. We've had no reports of anybody being without equipment or uh, unable to get that. Um, same way with ventilators. You know, we've never seen a situation where we've had to, you know, break into the surge vents that we um, had here locally. We've got uh, 10 presently at University of Iowa, 12 over at Mercy, and I think there's six over at VA right now. We've even been uh, fortunate enough to be able to send four up to Mercy One Sioux City uh, when they had a surge request last week for ventilators. So. We feel like we're pretty good, and we're in pretty good shape, but I want to remind everybody that your uh, continued vigilance throughout the summer and as things open back up uh, will be key to our success, uh, such, assess, ass, Excuse me, especially as we go into this fall when we start seeing people resume uh, schedules with school and, and other activities. Um, those public health core missions will be really key, you know, whether it's social distancing, cleaning your hands, staying home when you're sick, increased surveillance of uh, your temperature, things like that. Those are all helping everyone out. So uh, with that, I'd like to take any questions uh, that have come across and uh, just encourage everybody to stay informed and do what you can to be part of the solution. Okay. This question is from Kate at the Iowa Public Radio. Are there efforts to provide housing for people who aren't able to self-isolate, either for COVID-positive patients or healthcare providers? Some other counties are doing this in motels, et cetera. That's been done since day one here. Uh, we were probably the first ones to do that in the state. You could check with State Homeland Security, but we sent that submission to State Homeland Security back in March, and when we were, to my knowledge, 
uh, either the first or one of the first counties to do that. Um, we've housed folks from decompression of um, shelter house, uh, domestic violence intervention program, and other areas in hotels, motels, et cetera, um, throughout this. Oh, I'm sorry. A question from Travis at KWWL. Have discussions stopped about possible emergency bed facilities or testing sites at places like the county fairgrounds, or is that still a possibility? Those are still kept as an ongoing possibility. We uh, have the uh, fairgrounds facility set up for doing one of a number of things, uh, either a test Iowa site if we would need to. Um, presently, there's one in Cedar Rapids going on, uh, or an alternate care site if we would have uh, the need for that. So we're maintaining all those capabilities and all those plans throughout the summer and into the fall because uh, we obviously need to plan for the worst and hope for the best. Okay, we have a question uh, from Hillary Ojeda at the Press Citizen. Can you talk about the orders for PPE and have orders continued at the same pace for the area's hospitals, nursing homes, and first responders? No, I would say they're generally down overall. Um, we've seen a decrease in need for N95 masks. We've seen a decrease in the need for um, the reusable face shields. Um, the nice thing with some of those reusable products, um, a lot of the first responders have gone to have face masks that are uh, able to be decontaminated and reused. Um, University of Iowa has come up with a very creative re-sterilization, reuse process for their N95s. Um, a lot of the face shields that are used out there now are, are able to be decontaminated and reused. So I would say overall in the last three weeks, really, we've seen a decrease in most things. Um, gowns continue to be obviously a demand. Um, disposable gloves obviously continue to be a demand. Um, and those are probably our two biggest things. Uh, we expect to see some increased demand in um, simple ear loop face masks as government entities reopen, though. All right. Looks like we have no further questions okay. for you. Thanks, Dave. All right. Thanks. That concludes our press conference for today. Once again, thank you to the reporters for your questions, for our community partners who participated, and for all of those who are watching online. Have a great day.